What, a polo shirt and khakis? Is it good enough for you? <laughs> no, slang may not be accurate. <laughs> what are you, Prince Zuko? <laughs> that could expose us to liability. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's smart, has good taste, and not much to do on a Sunday night. I'm Kelly Anakin. <laughs> and I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. The men just look beautiful. How many people are in here today? Uh, only one man, and I look great. <laughs> <laughs> no arguments here. All right. Welcome, cousins. Uh, we hope you've had a nice couple of weeks mm-hmm. to decompress after Downton Abbey's, uh, f- or I guess really up yours downstairs finale yeah. podcast. Yeah. Well, and I mean the you know quite packed broadcast schedule on PBS. That's true. Frankly, yeah, it was a bit of, it was a bit overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. From our perspective, <laughs> so now we are here with our series three wrap up episode. That's right. We will be uh, covering the big plot arcs throughout Series 3, as well as catching up on correspondence with telegrams from our cousins. We have quite a lot to get through. Yes, indeed. But before we dive in there, we do have a special announcement on behalf of our podcast network, Bald Move. That's right. Here at Bald Move, we're running a contest for all Bald Move listeners, and that includes you, cousins. The award is a Kindle Fire. Which I've seen one. Yeah. My mom got one for Christmas, and I was jealous. Yeah, they are pretty sharp. Uh, but there is a, a free Kindle Fire out there for somebody, and what you need to do to have a chance to win is promote baldmove.com in, in a tweet, basically. Uh, if you can tweet about baldmove.com, not about Up Yours Downstairs or any of the individual shows. We but... don't need your stinking promotion. <laughs> well, it's not our Kindle Fire. That's true, but also <laughs> we, we do need the promotion, so yeah. if you wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, you, you won't get anything for it, but, you know, we won't stop you. <laughs> uh, but what you do is you, you put out a tweet promoting the website, and you go to thebaldmove.com, and... Uh, paste a copy of your tweet and your email address, and a uh, winner is going to be randomly drawn from all entries on March 19th. This uh, contest has actually been going on for a couple weeks. There's entries in there already, but feel free to, to get your hat in the ring. Multiple entries are accepted, so you can definitely increase your odds by increasing your promotion. So, uh, yeah, that's a great opportunity for everybody out there. We are presumably ineligible. I would hope. I would certainly hope so. (laughs) But we would be thrilled if it was one of our cousins who were to win the Kindle Fire. So uh, if you win the Kindle Fire through this contest, let us know. Right. We want to hear your story. (laughs) We do. So, yeah, please do that. And please check us out through baldmove.com. Check out their other shows. We're, We're excited to be a part of it still. And we... You know, we want to we want to be part of the family. Yeah, absolutely. The family just got bigger, cousins. That's right. Uh, our family also, by the way, did get slightly bigger. We have a new country to report, which is New Caledonia. Ooh, I know. So much fancier than Old Caledonia. <laughs> right, it is. Uh, it's very exotic. One of our one of our more exotic countries that we've gotten. So I was quite pleased by that one. Well, thank you, New Caledonian, wherever you are. <laughs> new Caledonia, presumably. Well, maybe not anymore. Yeah, it's hard to say. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, it's time to try and wrap our little melon heads, <laughs> much like baby civvies, uh, around everything that happened this series. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess first we can talk about the special features 
Yeah, we did uh, take a look at most of them. There's uh, the seven little featurettes on our season three DVD. Which we received by pledging our support to our local PBS affiliate, which we endorse as a way to both get those DVDs and support your local PBS affiliate. Indeed. And yeah, they were, uh, there was one about Downton in 1920. Which introduced us to Alistair Bruce, the historical consultant on Downton Abbey. Gayest name ever. And... Look, I have no idea what his sexual orientation is. That's his business alone, but he seemed awful gay. Yeah, he seemed very gay. <laughs> he did. Um, in, in an enjoyable British way. He was quite delightful. Yes, yes. Uh, he is the one that thought that the men in the 1920s just look beautiful. Well, he liked those bright young things you read about in the newspapers. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, uh, we realized that Downton Abbey has bidden farewell to Anne Nosh Oldham. I know, who had previously been their costume designer. Yeah. Now they have... Did you catch her name, the lady? Uh, I guess I didn't catch the costumer's name. We don't remember her name, but if you watch the featurettes, (laughs) and one of the people seems like she's totally strung out on heroin the whole time, (laughs) it's that lady. Yes. But, you know, I guess she's capable of doing her job. Yeah, she I mean, designed Edith's uh, wedding dress and Mary's and, you know, did all the costumes. That's right. Maybe, and- maybe you know, the downside of that heroin addiction was everything that Sybil was wearing. <laughs> well, because she said, and Jessica Finley-Brown, who plays uh, Sybil... We're both saying, oh, you know, we wanted to do this whole bohemian thing with Sybil. And I was like, but you didn't. Right. You That's- failed... You failed. Do you do you know what bohemian means? Because Edith looked way more bohemian. Yeah, she didn't. It's not like it's not like she was was bohemian and the clothes were just ugly. It wasn't even bohemian no, in any way. No, her clothes had no personality and yeah. they were terribly unflattering. Yeah, as was her hairstyle. Yeah, in particular. So heroin fail. <laughs> right. But I mean that both heroin, the drug, and heroin, like the you know character. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, because she had talked some about how Branson was supposed to sort of look, you know, thrown together when he arrived from Ireland. Um, so why don't you just say the same thing about Sybil? Like, if Sybil's excuse is just, you know, she had no money there and mm-hmm. had to buy sacks from but the local seamstress. But I don't think that he looked that thrown. Like, that's the thing. Well, I guess it's just our modern sensibilities can't conceive of somebody of that time period looking thrown together. Yeah. Because... Yeah. Even their you, most casual outfit. <laughs> their most casual outfit is dressier than the things my brothers wore to, like, my graduation. You know what I'm right, saying? Like, right. Yeah. It's like, what, a polo shirt and khakis? Is it good enough for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It wasn't showing up in, like, a Tommy Bahama shirt and cargo <laughs> shorts, for God's sake. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so that that was interesting. Uh, they talked about the fact that in the 20s, girls started rouging their knees, mm-hmm. which Kelly had sort of heard of before, but was a complete... I'm pretty sure there's a lyric about it in Candor and Ebb's musical Chicago. Mm. But um, apparently, the flappers, although, when they also go to great pains to like talk about like how like this isn't like the jazz age and the roaring 20s, but then they bring this up. So I don't know what to think. Right, right. But at any rate, you know, these these daring young women who were going out and, you know, slutting it up <laughs> on the town, it had always been a convention of society that you keep your knees hidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, clearly much more so than your ankles, although your ankles were also considered 
so attractive that they would just drive <laughs> men wild, which I will never understand. It's never happened to me yet. Like, maybe hear, I just haven't met the right ankle. You hear about foot fetishes, but I've never <laughs> heard of an ankle fetish. Not once. That's true. Although at this time, there probably were. Uh, it could be. Uh, at any rate, women would go out with their knees exposed, and they wanted to draw attention to their knees. So they would rouge their knees to make sure that people were looking at them. Yeah. And I think it's weird, <laughs> and I couldn't find anything to this effect, but I'm like, if you're rouging your knees, it looks like they're red, like from kneeling. Right, I know. As in filleting someone. Yeah. Uh, it just I, it just strikes me as so funny. It's like, why not take lipstick and draw an arrow pointing to your knees? Or, you know, I no, just, I, it's, <laughs> it's bizarre. It's yeah. really strange, yeah. but it was a thing that happened. But I mean, that's, you know, that's fashion. Ugh. It's crazy. Yeah, there was some other stuff. Dan Stevens loved driving his car so much, his fancy touring car. It was literally the only positive thing we got out of Dan Stevens the entire time. Like, the rest of the time, he he was was being such a smarmy asshat. Yes, he was. Oh, my God. The only genuine emotion he seemed to feel was for that car. Yeah, and also weird, outside of the Downton clothes, he didn't look puffy at all. Yeah, yeah. And also, huh. Listen up, everybody. If Alan Leach is our dude going forward, if this is going to be our male lead, uh, he is so hot in not those clothes. Like, yeah. he does, I mean, he, they've never been able to costume him well mm-hmm. for whatever reason. You yeah. Know, back in the days of the jumpsuits <laughs> right. and uh, other things. But, like, uh, if he's just in his civvies, he is just scrumptious. I, I can't deny it. That man is beautiful. I, it's true. So. I'm uh I'm fully on board with him being our sort of male, you know, our male heir to Matthew <laughs> Crawley. Yeah, I I do hope that's how they go. And it seems like from the casting news that they've been announcing, uh, they're introducing you know a love interest for Mary that's not Branson. Mm-hmm. That was something that people had been concerned about. Right, was that Branson and Mary would like get shoved together, which I just couldn't even. Mary would thought, never allow it. Right. I mean, the thought did occur to me as just sort of a like. Well, make it a lot easier for to steal that baby. <laughs> well, yes. No, I mean, the thought had occurred to me, but after it occurred to me, I was like, that is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mary, is, Mary is not going to become Mary Branson. No, absolutely That's not. That's not happening. No. No. Well, you know, and I have a lot of questions about the succession mm-hmm. and just sort of, you know, is it going to be like royalty where, you know, when her father dies, she'll sort of be, you know, acting as regent mm-hmm. for her son. By the way, listen, this is such a dumb spoiler that we're not even going to give it a spoiler alert, except that I just did, so you're welcome. <laughs> uh, apparently, the baby is named George. Oh, wow. Which, like, what? Well, I mean, I'm glad they didn't go the naming him Matthew route. Yeah. Because you can only go so with many so many honorifics, because then it just yeah. turns into Wuthering Heights. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I'm actually surprised that he wasn't named Robert. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, that's... Like that just occurred and to call me him now. Like but... baby Bob or something. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, but apparently Mary's not going to be getting along too well as a mother, which uh, I can't. Right. Nobody's really surprised, but right. I hadn't. Re- well, you know, we all kind of thought like she'd be, you know, co-parenting with Matthew, and now he's right. out of the picture. So you got to well, figure, it's... you know, the the depression that comes with losing a spouse, the postpartum depression, right. The fact that, you know, she may never be the Countess of Grantham. Yeah. I just don't see how she can be unless she marries her own son. And that's a little too greedy, <laughs> even for Downton Abbey. Right. 
Um, but you know, she's essentially lost everything that she thought gave her life meaning except for this baby yeah. who she's not particularly fond of or something. Right. Well, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think she ever, you know, wanted a baby the way, you know, not in a baby fever kind of way. Yeah. She's she, not very maternal at all. Right. That's not her thing. Well, and even throughout the show, we commented constantly on the fact that she seemed in no hurry. Yeah. And not at all excited about having a baby, even when she explicitly says to Sybil, well, yeah, I mean, she only regarded her pregnancy as an annoyance, uh-huh. you know, well, it kept her boy, from dancing. I and... can relate to that. <laughs> Not that I've, you know, right. got anything on the way, people. <laughs> Listen, we're going to be talking about Downton Abbey, and as a woman, I've considered being pregnant, it's and true. the fact that it seems like a bum deal. <laughs> so listen, let's just not do that. Yeah. Anybody that's listening that wants to email me and be like, oh my god, are you pregnant? And I'll be like, no, I'm not. Yeah. In fact, I'm deliberately not getting pregnant for even longer because you asked me that question. <laughs> Rest assured, cousins, if Kelly is, does become pregnant, you you won't be the first to know. But you won't you'll, be you'll, the first to know. You'll know eventually. But we'll complain about it all <laughs> the time. Yeah. So, yeah, the special features, you know, the, the Downton in 1920 was one, and then they had a special feature for each of the weddings, the wedding of, well, the one that happened and the one that didn't. We learned that Edith's middle name is Josephine. That made me like her even more. Yeah, yeah. I love the name Josephine. Close-ups of the wedding programs Mm -hmm. for that one, yeah. And they also, I I liked the the one about Lady Mary's wedding because it was a big, like there was like paparazzi all around trying to get a picture of her. Well, and we meet Victoria Brooks, who was the head of publicity and uh was such an asshat. She's like, oh, you know, it's like our own version of the royal wedding. And she's a PR person, so of course she believes it. Right, right. It was so insane. Yeah, but what I liked about it was that the people at the top, like Baron Fellows and some of the producers and the people at the bottom, like the villagers, there were extras and all those sorts of things and the actors quite frankly were reasonably happy about it and then they kept also having interviewers interviews with like the middle managers of the crew well and like they the were, production designer yeah, like was the, like that was the thing that i liked the most was the production designer because mm-hmm. she was like yeah they had services in here last night so we had to get here early in the morning yeah clear out all of their stuff mm-hmm you know, which I'm sure was a stipulation of the contract. Right, it was right. like, we're not dismantling our church just for you assholes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, move all that out. Move all their stuff in. And, you know, make sure that it was consistent with the aesthetic of the show everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the production designer. Like, every interview yeah. that they did with her. A lot of women in really high design positions on this show, that's which is really nice to see. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, but I just like the the top and the bottom were really happy and excited. And the ones in the middle were just like, oh, my God, I can't wait till this is over. Well, but, like, the actors... Uh, the actors came across poorly, I thought. Yeah. Some of them, like Dan Stevens and Jessica Finley Brown in particular, because they were like, oh, we're like, oh, it'll be fun. It'll be like a wedding. Yeah. Oh, but wait, it lasts 11 hours and there's no reception. I'm like, yeah. Where do you- <sighs> well, I look, I don't think, I don't, I wouldn't want to be an actor being interviewed for a featurette. Like, what's, ugh. I would. Uh, well, I mean, that wouldn't be the part of the job that you would like best. Laura Carmichael and uh, Michelle Dockery came across really well. That's, as that's did true. Hugh Bonneville. Uh, Jim yeah. Carter, who plays Carson. He, we loved Jim Carter. Can he be our grandpa? Uh, yeah. Seriously. Oh yeah. my gosh, he's amazing. We can just go hang out and have like you know picnics with him and Imelda Staunton. It'll be fabulous. <laughs> uh, McGee. In some of her interviews, talked less weird than she does in the show, and then in other ones, she talked <laughs> more weird. Yeah, she does seem in real life to be savvier than McGee. Yeah, which is good. Well, I just feel like 
her accent's history from moving from place to place and now playing this role all the time, like, she just must not know how to talk anymore. Yeah. Just sort of like, like just on a fundamental brain level. She's it's, just strictly phonetic at this point. <laughs> right. She's like, this sound will elicit this reaction. <laughs> right. Anthony Strallen, I forget what that guy's name is. He was in there. Yeah, yeah. He and Alan Leach didn't make much of an impression on me. True. Leslie Nickel, it was fun to see her, like, in makeup and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, Elsie Hughes was not in there and getting interviewed. Oh, uh, yeah. But, you know, whatever. I'm sure yeah. she's busy. She's got <laughs> things to do. Sure. Uh, we did find out the name of the village that they use as a stand-in for Grantham Village. It's mm-hmm. Bampton in Oxfordshire. Yeah. And they, uh... You know, they said, at least on this featurette, that they've had a very good, you know, relationship with the village. Well, it sounds the- like they've taken care. I mean, I'm right. sure there's still annoyances when people are, like, trying to, you know, drive places. And they're like, ah, damn you, Downton Abbey. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, they use the villagers as uh, background. Or apparently, <laughs> as they say in the States, Atmos, which is not what I've ever heard what? extra work referred to in this country. You're yeah. referred to as extra work or background. Right. Are you referring to... To the United States of America, or are these some other states that you've made up? <laughs> are you referring to that episode of Doctor Who where they had that kid who was an American and he made him say clever, you know, smart or intelligent when it never sounds right for Americans to say that? This is a pet peeve of mine, cousins, and yeah. hopefully some of you agree. But, you know, in America, if somebody is hyper intelligent, we say that they're smart. Mm-hmm. We say, oh, you know, so and so is very smart. Uh, in Britain, if you say someone is smart, uh, it means they look good. Right. It means they look sharp. Uh, whereas if you say they are clever, that means that they are smart. In America, right. clever implies a certain deviousness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so these are just semantic arguments. <laughs> so that episode of Doctor Who, and those of you who watch Doctor Who know what I'm talking about. It's the one with those weird rhinos and that clever kid. Right. Uh, anyway, they had the American kid say he was doing something clever. And I was like, fuck off, Doctor Who. No, <laughs> he's not. You'd think you'd think Doctor Who of all people would know to colloquialize appropriately, <laughs> given the TARDIS and all of its magical language interpreting capabilities. Right, which seems he should uh, he should go in there and pull some levers until the TARDIS figures out what clever means in different uh-huh. circumstances. Agreed. Really falling down on the job there, TARDIS. <laughs> oh well. Also, Bates in his interviews. What's his name? Uh, Brendan Coyle. Brendan Coyle. Right. Uh, he was wearing a camo jacket. And it was very incongruous. Yeah, it was like, odd. Not a good look for you, Brendan Coyle. Yeah. Joanna Froggett, though, who plays Anna, she was talking smack about her ladies' maid uniforms <laughs> yeah. and her hair. She says she calls herself Hildegard <laughs> because she looks German. Yeah. <laughs> Which means horrible. Oh, Speaking right. as a woman with three quarters German descent, <laughs> ugh. German is not necessarily... Unless you look like the St. Pauli girl. <laughs> right. You don't really want to look German. Or Heidi Klum. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. That's, that's what we got, that's German ladies. <laughs> yeah, and then there were a few more. There was uh, one about the men of Downton Abbey, which was, ha, about time they got some focus. <laughs> <laughs> look, they know their target audience. A lot right. of, you know, I think this show fills a void for women who aren't interested in romance novels per se. Mm-hmm. But they still want to look at the men are beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's certainly. They're very, very beautiful. They are. And uh, the men, by and large, on this show are the least morally complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Carlyle was pure evil. Right. 
And everybody else is pretty much good. You know, they want good things for the women in their lives. They yeah. occasionally go about it in a bonehead fashion. Yeah. Yeah. But by and large, these are all men that are very aspirational for women. You know, whether, you know, whether you're married and you're just kind of bored right. or whether you're, uh, you know, single, whether, you know, you're, you're dating or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, these are, these are nice, safe fantasies to spend some time with. Yeah. And I fully endorse that. Yeah. Yeah. Always have. That's, yeah. That's much fine. more enjoyable than those Outlander books. <laughs> I believe you. I expect I'll be getting some letters about that comment. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and there was also a whole thing about Shirley MacLaine at Downton Abbey with everybody falling all over themselves. That was bizarre. Yeah. Because she seemed like a real bitch. <laughs> well, she just is so, like, didn't care. She was just like, you know, I didn't decide anything until I got here, and then I just sort of let the costume tell me what my character would do. And, uh-huh. like, you know, which isn't... Uh, which, the- honestly, I had a teacher when I was in college, uh, Bruce Cromer, for those of you who live in the Southwest Ohio area. <laughs> you really should go see him in something live. He's yeah. phenomenal as a performer. But he would always say it was silly that in America, in the theater, you go into rehearsals and there's no set and there's no costumes. Whereas in Britain, they, and this may be wrong, if you're a Briton, if you're a British theater artist and I'm incorrect, please correct me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when they go into rehearsals, they have costumes, they have the set, they're able to use the environment to inform their work a lot more mm-hmm. than we are in America, where we have to, you know, play pretend for eight weeks until tech yeah. week and then everybody goes crazy right and then maybe you have a show yeah um but especially in a period piece i mean it restricts right. your movement it it tells you what your character values and personal appearance and those are all very important details yeah in building a character yeah and i don't know it's fascinating to me because they kept kind of like trying to like put maggie smith and shirley mclean in the same category Right. And I don't, I just don't see it. Like, I, I mean, Maggie Smith is a, currently at this moment a bigger star than Shirley MacLaine. Absolutely. Well, like, Shirley MacLaine was huge in her younger days. Right. And Maggie, I mean, Maggie Smith was perfectly respectable and did very well for herself. Right. Uh, you know, and they were both competing for Oscars, you know, kind of in the same thing but like you know Shirley MacLaine was hanging out with like Jack Nicholson and Warren Warren Beatty's her half brother and like she, yeah, she was yeah. in there with all those guys and then she went crazy <laughs> right which Maggie Smith doesn't appear to have done right so yeah it was just kind of weird yeah I mean you know Shirley MacLaine had some interesting things to say about it but it was just so clear that they were all like oh my god Shirley MacLaine Shirley MacLaine and she did not give a millifuck yeah about being there she was right. like what oh i could just hang out at my fabulous beach house all week or i could go to england and hang out with you jerks for two weeks yeah no and it was it was two weeks because the costumer was kind of complaining the heroin costumer yeah that she had to like fly out to la the week before she was coming to do all the fittings uh-huh. and then she was just going to show up and it all had to be ready to go and, yeah yeah so, you know, it was interesting. Uh, one thing, this was for Lady Edith's wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julian Fellows was saying that he viewed Mary, I'm sorry, he was saying that he viewed Edith as the least proactive of all three of the girls in yes. terms of securing her own happiness. Completely, completely disagree with him. Yeah. I'm not even talking about series three. Right. When it becomes very clear that Edith is the most proactive. Right. And he's saying, you know, look, Mary is the least proactive of all of them. Easily. 
almost everything that happens to Mary through the course of the series is things that happen to Mary. Mm-hmm. These are not things that Mary has affected on her own. Yeah. I mean, Matthew Crawley comes into her life by circumstance. Kamal Pamuk, right. you know, seduces her. You know, he seduces her. She does not seek that out. Right. Uh, Richard Carlyle. We oh, don't see them meet, but you, come on. You saw that fabulous hat. She was asking for it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Up Yours Downstairs does not in any way condone rape apology. We don't. At all. Tom. Sorry. Uh, but, you know, just Mary just is drifting through her life. Right. Well, and, and Edith Sid- always. And, you know, Sybil used to be much more proactive, but then she chose to marry this guy and hitch her, her star to that wagon. Right. And, I mean, even the, you know, quote-unquote enlightened couples like Sybil and Branson... You know, he doesn't seem to have any particular, you know, not anymore. Right. Well, that just, that just got completely neutered in yeah. series three. So, no, it what could can have been really, a really yeah. interesting exploration of gender and marriage. But then, like, as soon as they got married, it was like, oh, they're married. No need to discuss the role of men and women anymore. Right. Well, Whereas and Edith they... from the beginning, Edith wrote the letters. Edith tried to get Matthew uh-huh. when he showed up. She She's always. showed him all the churches. Yeah. She's always been proactive. She pursued Anthony Strallen for years. She was the one who was trying to figure out about fake Patrick. Yeah. I mean, she has been invested in making a life for herself from the beginning. And I find it so bizarre that but, Julian Fellows can't even interpret his own show. Yeah. Which may have a lot to do with the reasons that we're going to be very angry later <laughs> as we're recapping series three. Right. Now, I'll say this much for Julian Fellows. He gets so excited. <laughs> he does. About this show. I mean, his enthusiasm is palpable. At one point I wrote down, Julian Fellows, uh, somebody give grandpa his calm down medicine. <laughs> like, I'm like, uh, how's your ticker there? Julian Fellows. But he talks about how, you know, seeing these great actors doing things that he made up in the bath, Uh you know, which is, yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the fun of writing. Yeah. Particularly when you do have control over it like he does. Right, right. You know, and the other thing I'll say before we launch into an hour of criticizing him, (laughs) you know, is that we do recognize it's much easier to see ways to improve something that already exists as opposed to starting with a blank page Uh and creating all the stuff that he did. So it's, you know, we we recognize that, you know, if if he didn't create all this stuff, we wouldn't even have anything to talk about. Right. We've never created a worldwide phenomenon. Right. Uh so, you know, yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> Give this podcast another year or two. Um, We're taking over. Yeah, we skipped over the featurette about the cricket game and Journey to the Highlands. We started the one about the cricket game, but as soon as I saw those clothes, I was like, right. guess what I don't give a fuck about? Cricket. Yeah, we we couldn't go on. Well, the, you know, they're fairly repetitive. They we were are, watching them yeah. all in a row, which well, we they, don't and recommend. And they reused clips in yeah. some of them. So it was just like, oh, all right, fine. Yeah. We're over you. Yeah, parcel out your featurettes. Yeah, don't do what we did, yeah. which was try to watch them all in one. <laughs> yeah. That was clearly a mistake. Yeah. All right, so we want to... Dive into our our series three review. Let's dive. Let's go. All right. I I kind of tried to draw up all the plot arcs in the season. These are sort of in the order of when they were first introduced. But I was basically just going through all the synopses on the PBS website to to organize my mind. So, 
Uh, and I, it didn't because it doesn't really make sense with this show to look at it in terms of episodes because the episodes are really just kind of arbitrary, mm-hmm. you know, chunks Absolutely. of the story. Uh, even at this, because it's even because a lot of HBO shows will be like that, but the se- the season itself will still be like a unified story. Yeah, but that's not even really so true on Downton Abbey. It's very episodic without the episodes mattering. Right. You know? Right. Like it, yeah. There's just always a variety of stories that are at various points in their development, mm-hmm. and yeah, serialized. Yeah, that's the word I was looking yes. for. Yes. Uh, so we start off with Lord Grantham losing all the family's money in an investment in the Grand Trunk Railroad, or G Trunk. <laughs> that's right. So as we all recall, yeah, he lost all the money. But thankfully, Matthew Crawley then found out that he had inherited money from Reggie Swire quite conveniently. Um, the magical elf Reggie Swire. Uh, but he refused to take it for no reason. Because shut up, that's why. <laughs> yes. And Shirley MacLaine was there, MacL, the women. Ah, uh, MacL! Yeah. Which, she was fun. We, we kind of have missed her over We the, really have, we did, that was the thing about the Shirley MacLaine feature. We were like, oh, remember how fun it was when you were around? Yeah. Come back. Yeah. yeah. Come back and hang. <laughs> uh, so the women tried to talk her into giving them the money, but she couldn't. She just, her, her capital is all locked up. I don't think she would have anyway. I think you're right. It may not even have been true. No, I know. Yeah. I, I don't think she would have had any reason to lie. Well, yeah. But I also think that she and McGee would have had a, you know, a bit of a sit down and been <laughs> like, look, dude. Yeah. This has been fun, but I'm really tired of funding these a-holes. Right. Well, and, and McGee, as she said, is American, have gun, will travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, she doesn't have a gun, but she was willing to travel up to, uh, it was called Downton Estate, right? Or what was it called? Downton Acres. Downton. Downton something. Well, whatever it was. <laughs> the place they were going to have to move to was nicer than anybody listening to this podcast. You will, no one listening to this podcast no. will ever live somewhere as nice as the plate, the hovel yeah. they were going to get stuck in. Gasvidanya, uh, comrade. <laughs> right. Uh, but then Matthew and Mary had a series of dumb fights about whether it would, he would take the money. And finally, Reggie Swire got sick of listening to them from the afterlife <laughs> and sent them a letter saying to shut up and take the damn money. And... Well, it was Lavinia, actually, who got sick of it. Oh, right. Uh, she was like, oh, I already died, and now this? <laughs> right. What else do I have to do to sacrifice myself for you? Yeah. Uh, so finally, they just take the money, which is great. Uh, so it was a quite repetitive plot arc. I, I rated it as medium high on my. Arc yeah, we theory. have. There's four categories here that Tom set up, which I really like actually. Yeah. Uh, the categories are repetitiveness, thematic interest, character behaving obstinately for no clear reason, <laughs> and does anything change? Right. Are you sure you didn't go to theater school? <laughs> this is great analysis. No, I thank you. Uh, so yeah, I said repetitiveness, medium high. Uh, thematic interest is decent. The, one of the themes that was really, you know, through the season and through the series is, uh, men versus women, mm-hmm. their different roles, their different ability to affect their own lives. Right. Basically. And this, much of this plot line was women struggling to talk the men in their lives into being reasonable and the men obstinately refusing. Right. You know, um, so that, that was pretty good. 
But yes, characters behaving obstinately for no clear reason. Absolutely. This might have been the most unreasonably obstinate behavior of the entire series. I mean, to the point that it nearly poisoned the well for us and a number of you. Right. It was awful. Matthew's... This this arc, Matthew's because up until this point, Matthew has been the voice of reason on this show. He's been modern. He's been middle class. He's he's been sort of this entry into this world, right? Where then just all of a sudden he becomes you know this crotchety old miser, right? Well, and just this sense of honor about this thing that uh, yeah, like what are you, Prince Zuko? Oh, he could have been. If only he'd come out of this wreck with just a scar instead oh, of being killed. a horrible killed. scar. Yeah. If he'd come out of it with a horrible scar, they could have just recast the actor. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that, that would have been great. That would have been amazing. <laughs> they just He's just bandaged in his face for <gasps> what the if he was, episode. What if he was like Harvey Dent? <laughs> he became the villain. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that would have been so amazing. That would have been amazing. Like, ugh. Way to go, Julian Fellows. Maybe you should have watched more Batman the Animated Series <laughs> in your pre-Twilight, Twilight years. Yeah. Or for that matter, more Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in order mm-hmm. to learn how to recast characters when the actors yeah, ask for too point. much. Yeah. Just do it. Just, you know. Or Family Matters. He could have just, you know, yeah. disappeared. And people be like, oh, Matthew's just in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be down any time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and yes, and does anything... He could have been the Phantom of the Abbey! <laughs> that would have been nice. The Phantom of the Abbey is there, inside the walls. <laughs> they're up at breakfast, and their guest is like, I-, I thought I heard an organ playing last night. It's like, oh, that's just Matthew. <laughs> don't worry about he it. He does that now. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know where he found the organ. He keeps trying to trick Mary into coming through this mirror, and she's like, no, but if I went through it, how could I look at myself? <laughs> Yes, and uh, the uh, the question, does anything change in this arc? No, not at all. There was literally no point to this arc. There wasn't. That's what's so frustrating about much of the arcs in this season is why, what did they accomplish? You know, and I try to look at, you know, what is Julian Fellows thinking about it? And, you know, like, it's basically a, you know, sort of preparation for a rehearsal for the later plot where the money is being mismanaged Mm -hmm. and so i guess what it does accomplish is put matthew in a position to be like more involved in the finances but again this could have taken 15 minutes and it took three hours yeah and really he could have just sort of you know like robert could have just invited him into the being a part of the finances yeah he could have like as now that he's married now that he's I mean, well, he was always the heir. Yeah, he was always going to be the heir. Yeah, so. Well, and Robert, that's the other thing, and I don't think we ever touched on this, but back when Matthew was first named the heir, Robert was the one who was like, oh, come look at the village with me. Help me manage it. Yeah. So A, the fact that Matthew never noticed the mismanagement at that point, and B, that Robert would suddenly do this 180 and be like, no, you can't help. Right. It's just weird. It is weird. Well, I mean, you know, I can see that, there's a difference between the estate and the money management so that like the like he might not have seen the investments like uh-huh. G trunk right. or whatever but still it was odd lord grant them in the grand canadian trunk yes <laughs> the anybody, grand canadian trunkadelic <laughs> if anybody in britain is looking to start a p funk tribute band yeah uh 
Or you could also, maybe you could open for Stating the Hotheads, McG's <laughs> band. Don't do it. You'll have to deal with that cow song, and nobody should have to deal with that cow song. Who writes a song about cows? I, I'm not, I don't. We've already talked about this. I'm sorry. Let's move on to this mini arc. Okay. Yeah, the mini arcs are just ones that take place in a single episode, and this is the one where uh, MacAl saves the party. Uh, the party is ruined, but they're just going to have a picnic, and everybody's going to eat everywhere. And that that one was fun. And the the woman was saying that she felt like one of those bright yes. young things. Well, and then we noticed in because that scene was in a featurette. She just like like she dives down into the food <laughs> like she hasn't eaten in a month. It's amazing. Well, she she when does she get a chance to grab her own food? That's true. Like especially actually that's really true because if she never doesn't come down for breakfast anymore, all her food is handed uh-huh. to her in her whole life. Yeah. Wow. Never thought of that. <laughs> Um, well, perhaps someday if you get married, <laughs> you won't have to come down for breakfast. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I, yeah. We don't have any servants to do that. So. Or, or a down. That's true. For that matter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, fit into the theme, men versus women, old versus new. So that was nice. And, uh, there was a certain amount of obstinacy in that one. Well, but I don't think that obstinacy was, uh, you know, there yeah. was a reason. Look, the yeah. reason behind the obstinacy is that these people have a certain expectation for a party at Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, 20 years ago, they would have just sent everybody home. But people now are a bit more open-minded. It's just, you know, yeah. some people haven't adjusted to that yet. Yeah. No, that's fair. Uh, so that arc gets a, gets a, a thumbs up. So our next arc is uh, Edith and Anthony Strallen. So Edith is doggedly pursuing Sir Anthony, and he thinks he's too old and cripply for her. <laughs> he then ends up jilting her at the altar after, you know, a three-episode arc of her pursuing him, and it's very sad. It was so sad. And I really, again, have to hand it to Laura Carmichael for letting herself be so... Uh, like, she was yeah. ugly crying. Yeah. Like... Well, ugly, she, ugly crying. She actually, this goes back to the featurette. She had a thing in the, the thing about her wedding where she's saying, just as an actor, that from in that scene, she goes from the happiest she's ever been mm-hmm. to completely devastated. Uh-huh. And then it's like, all right, everybody go back to one. We're shooting it again. Yeah. And like having to go through right. that repeatedly. No, yeah. and I mean, she does it so well. It's some of the most convincing crying we've seen on this show. Yeah, yeah. Repetitiveness is about a medium... You know, Strallen keeps making the same objection, uh, but, you know, he he performs it well. Yeah, and well, it's... Well, because it's, it's like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like he he's had this concern since before this series started. Right. And... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the point, like, the repetitiveness has a point, which is her breaking down his resistance mm-hmm. and then him, you know, re-deciding to, to resist, so... There was a point to the repetitiveness, at least. Thematic interest is very high. Yeah. This is kind of men versus women at its height, because we're talking about both Strallen and Robert at this point. Right. uh, Being very opposed to her kind of being tied to him forever. Yeah. Um, And and her inability to to make her own decisions about her life. With the notable exception of, of course, the Dowager Countess. Right. Uh, 
but it also makes a certain amount of sense because she's someone who's allied herself with the men in her life much more so than Mac L has. That's true. And I love that scene with Mac L where Edith is crying outside because, you know, she's yeah. been turned away from, from Strallen's house. Because you also get that great bit where, uh, Edith says, you know, how can you say I can't marry him when all of the young men that I knew are dead? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I feel does get a bit of short shrift in it, that plot. It really does. Because it's like, okay, you can be upset about her being married to this old guy, but like, what are her options at this point right we certainly don't see any and it it gets short shrift throughout this season like yeah. the aftermath of world war one this is the only plot line that really touches on mm-hmm. it there's a couple other glancing references yeah but this is you know apart from this nobody really discusses the fact and it was particularly her class because her class wasn't the generals in the back mm-hmm. they were the officers like we see matthew at the front line leading the charges mm-hmm. being specifically targeted mm-hmm. by the snipers on the other side mm-hmm. we're always trying to take out that exactly that level of officers and they sustained higher casualties than even the you know the privates below them. Well, and again, you see that come up when she starts writing her column because she writes that article mm-hmm. about the young officers who did survive right. getting completely dicked over by the system. Yeah, which like spoiler alert is what always happens. It is you know the people who take the greatest risk are the ones who suffer the most when the wars are over. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, in this one, is there a character behaving obstinately for no clear reason? Yes, LG in particular. Yeah. Uh, and just in these first couple episodes, we see the Dowager acting very erratically. Right. Which is really unfortunate. Yeah. Because she, in many ways, is you know has been one of the more grounded, pragmatic characters, and we just see her go all over the place this yeah. series. Yeah, we really do. Well, again, especially at the beginning, and this is you know we we certainly think that the first three episodes or so of the series were, you know, real rocky, and then it kind of pulled it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Does anything change? Yes, even though Edith remains unmarried, this clearly shapes her character going forward. I mean, honestly, of all of the characters on the show, in all of the seat, like, Mm -hmm. she has the most uh, dynamic arc of anybody on the show. Right, I think. I'm trying to think of anybody below stairs. I mean, if we were still troubling ourselves about Gwen, Gwen might have, you know, Gwen, the the ginger Mm -hmm. from series one, who you can now watch on uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. As Egret. I I just, yeah, I can't think of anybody else who has made this much forward progress because she was reprehensible in series one. mm -hmm. She was a very bad person. Yeah. And we saw her in series two connecting with more altruism and understanding sort of her place in the ecosystem. Right. And then having gained that understanding of her place in the ecosystem, moving completely, I think we're going to see her moving out of this ecosystem. I think I mean, it's, honestly, it's looking if, that way. If we are going to see her become, you know, the mistress right. to this editor and that's her primary relationship She's going to have to be aligning herself with a, a sector of society that she has not ever been part of. And yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see how how that affects both the structure of the show and also the structure of the family. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely going to be interesting. And we'll see. You know, I think, you know, Rose will be involved in that. Absolutely. That'll be interesting as well. Well, because there is, you know, again, the middle class is going to be gaining so much. 
in these interwar years. Right. And they're going to be able to take advantage of a lot of the things that the aristocracy have been taking advantage of, you know, just disposable income, uh, you know, mm-hmm. access to a lot of really, you know, great parties, <laughs> right. like that. Um, you know, they're going to be able to live a life that looks a lot more like the aristocracy without all of the stifling regulation yeah. of the aristocracy. Yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's, a, it's a new era and, mm-hmm. you know, what is the, seeing it, that's what's exciting about it sort of is seeing it from the aristocracy's perspective. Mm-hmm. Cause you didn't, you generally don't, you generally see mm-hmm. it from the younger generation's perspective. And I mean, and honestly, the only thing that I worry about and I don't think I think Laura Carmichael is pretty dedicated to the show and like mm. being in the show. Mm-hmm. But I'm just wondering if with her arc in particular, are we going to see the show have more of a diffuse structure right. where we're seeing these other locations and things like that? Yeah. Well, and I I worry about that though because right. I want to see her go in that direction. Yeah. But the show's attempts to do that in this series were disastrous. Right. They were really poorly executed. Yeah. No, we, you know. But I just, I, you know, the the interesting story is not her family accepting this relationship and accepting this guy. The interesting story is doing what they didn't do with Sybil. Yeah. Yeah. And saying, you know what? This is too much. Like, Sybil at least had the benefit of being legally married to this person. Right. There was... There was an established framework of how we're supposed to relate here. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, there is not... Yeah, no, and it's. I, I think that's definitely. Downton Place was the name of it. Ah, yes, Downton Place. Thank you. Uh, and I think there's definitely a real possibility of that. Mm-hmm. That that's how it'll go. Which is. It would be unfortunate. I really am much more interested in Edith's storyline at this point. Yeah, but I, you know, we'll see. I'm interested in seeing Mary. You know, the bad mother, the the mommy dearest Mary arc. So. <laughs> yeah, that that could be fun. So yeah, so we're excited about Edith. Right. Mini arc here, Daisy goes on strike. Oh my god. Right. Thematic interest, minimal, because it's so freaking stupid. It was, uh, Again, they had an opportunity here to engage in labor relations. Right. In a post-war era at a Which time is, when... one of the most important and dynamic eras in labor relations uh-huh. ever. So we've, you know, we've seen, you know, the kind of shit show that was the russian revolution (laughs) right and while that brought some of these issues to the forefront you know the fallout from that was so awful right that people you know we still have mccarthyism in the 50s people (laughs) still don't want to see socialist programs implemented in otherwise capitalist nations today right moreover one of the countries where you do see pretty successful implementation of socialist policies is britain yeah you know, I mean, Europe in general, unions became a real, real big force in a way. I mean, there were well, certainly a force they, in America. You know, but- I think they benefited from their geographic proximity to Russia. Mm-hmm. They were like, you know what? Here are the ideas from socialism right. that seem to work. When well, they, you start yeah. trying to codify those concepts into communism, you seem to run into problems. You know, well, they, and, and you run into a lot of the same issues that you have no matter what system of government you have where you have like a centralized Yeah. I mean basically there, you know, the powers that be had to reckon with the real possibility that they would be violently overthrown. Exactly. They're like, listen, we need to at least co opt some of this t- to stay in charge. And it would have been really interesting had they, you know, teased this out a little bit more because you're dealing not only with the labor issue, you're dealing with the fact that the money simply isn't there. Right. 
to provide a support staff member for Daisy. Right. And had she, you know, and, and that her is going on strike apparently had no consequences whatsoever. Right. When Which is, is insane. Like it should have, they're already short staffed. Mm-hmm. And, and so then you've got her because she doesn't even, she doesn't even know that the reason they're not hiring anybody is because the God of the house pissed away all the money uh-huh. and she doesn't even know that. And that, all of a sudden, like, this is his bad decisions influencing, you know, essentially the bottom rung mm-hmm. of anybody that we see on the show. Yeah. And, you know, th- their actions affecting each other. And it should have been affecting each other both ways, but it wasn't. Yeah, so that's really unfortunate. Uh, character behaving obstinately for no clear reason? Absolutely. Yes. She just decides she's going on strike and just as quickly decides she's not. And right. it's just, again... So much could have happened in those first three episodes. Yeah. I mean, and Julian Fellows pissed that away like Lord Grantham pissed away. <laughs> it's true. You've only got, you know, however many hours. What so, you know, say there were eight proper episodes, right? Yes. So you've got nine and a half hours to tell a cracking story. Yeah. And you chose not to. We know you're capable of telling a cracking story. Mm-hmm. Series one was damn near perfect. Yeah. I mean, that's why. Right. I mean, and that's the thing. I think, oh God, I just hope that he looked at sort of the first three series and was like, let's go back to series one. Let's figure out what worked there and how mm-hmm. I can apply that here. Because broadening the scope the way that he tried to in series two and then trying to bring it back in series three yeah just it's not his bag yeah he does really well in these claustrophobic environments right that's why gosford park is so effective yeah because gosford park you get a little bit of you know uh kelly mcdonald and maggie smith coming into the party but it's everybody's trapped in this environment Mm -hmm. for the entire weekend and it works so well. He's so good at the minutia of human relationships, particularly when people aren't choosing who they're being around. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, is why pursuing this Edith storyline to the end we'd like to see it go mm-hmm. would be a, a terrible idea for him. <laughs> yeah. but Like, it- new ideas? New characters? <laughs> I can't handle this! Yeah. Although the uh, old characters don't always work either. That's as true. we learn... <laughs> Uh, the next arc is, is, uh, the, the downstairs ones were a bit harder to neatly divide up, but I'm just calling this one round one of Thomas and O'Brien fighting. (laughs) Uh, so O'Brien's nephew, Alfred gets hired as a footman, uh, and this upsets Thomas for some reason. That's not entirely clear to me because, well, because then Alfred starts doing some valet work for Matthew, which Thomas didn't even want to do. He was complaining about the amount of work that he had to do. But then he's complaining because Alfred all of a sudden gets to be a valet with, like, no experience, and he had to work really hard. I mean, I understand that to a point. Right. It's not. I definitely do understand that to a point. It's not completely insane. I hate insane. seeing other people succeed. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I do relate to Thomas in that respect. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so then Thomas gets his revenge by tricking Alfred into burning a hole in Matthew's tailcoat, uh, which O'Brien then retaliates on Alfred's behalf because he is far too dumb <laughs> to do so himself. Well, he probably also doesn't know where Lord Grantham keeps his dress shirts. Well, that's true. Uh, yeah, she steals all of Lord Grantham's dress shirts, thus causing both Lord Grantham and Matthew to look the, like fools at the party that gets ruined anyway. <laughs> um, Thomas then gets his revenge... <laughs> By telling Molesley that O'Brien is going to quit, which he then passes on to McGee. 
And so, you know, there's a question, does anything change in this arc? You know, yes, Thomas and O'Brien hate each other now. But that changed before this arc, apparently. And again, cousins, we've all been corresponding together. We've been trying to suss it out. There's been no demonstrable change. The last, not even conflict between the two of them. The last scheme we saw them pull was the scheme where she told him to hide ISIS. Right. And, well, she, I don't think she told him to hide ISIS. Right, I mean, right. Like, find something that Lord Grantham cares about, hide it, and then be like, oh, I found this thing that you love. Yes. So, of course, Thomas is like, oh, it's dog. Which, hey, you know what? Good choice. He does love Best ISIS. Best possible choice. Yeah. His only love sprung from his only hate. <laughs> uh but, you know, that was her, you know, they were still scheming together yeah. on the same team. That's right. And and they just weren't anymore. And yeah. even just a throwaway line of dialogue. Like, yeah. it would have been fine for him. Like, why not give him a candidate that he wanted to be brought in as footman? Well, right. I mean, exactly. there's so many easy, easy fixes here to explain this sudden rift. Mm-hmm. But which is refre- it's referenced in the show. Yeah, Bates and Lord Grantham were like, weren't they best friends? And they're both like, not anymore. So stupid. Uh, <laughs> you know, like Thomas always had a fear of male gingers that O'Brien willfully exacerbated. <laughs> I, I don't know. That would have been delightful. <laughs> no, his first sexual experience was with a male ginger, oh. and perhaps it went poorly. Yeah, yeah. You know, in like a violent way. Could be. I know. I just, oh, uh, listen, cousins, so busy. Really wanting to write you Thomas and the Erotic Pen <laughs> fan fiction. Not kidding. But I guess Jimmy's kind of a ginger. Kind of. It's kind of a ginger. I don't know. I feel like people want to attribute red hair to people who don't actually have red hair. I agree to that. He's not even ginger. <laughs> He's strawberry blonde. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then so I guess what also changes is that McGee hates O'Brien now, although all that happens is she says, still, I'm very put out or let down or something like that. Right. And then that's it. And I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. Do we see them? We don't see them interact for almost the entire rest of the series. Yeah. So in theory, this somehow sets up the idea that, that O'Brien wants to leave at the end, but I mean, if first of all, it would be weird for McGee to hate O'Brien now without O'Brien being able to like clear it up and McGee to at least yeah, get over it. Yeah, they spend more time together right. than either of them spends with anybody else. It's right. going to come up. Yeah, but if they are not getting along anymore, let's see that. Let's mm-hmm. see what it's like because this is exactly the sort of claustrophobic situation. If you're spending hours a day with somebody that you no longer feel you trust mm-hmm. – how does that work? How does I know. that affect like, you? Welcome to my marriage. <laughs> JK, everybody. We're doing great. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, because then we could really see that. I mean, because then we could see her like, like if that's really happening, her character makes so much more sense. Well, and then now that we know that Siobhan uh, Finnerin is leaving, that's a much more interesting thing than almost everything that happened this season. <laughs> right. Like, you know, uh, and I have more to say on that score, you know, later. But, like, the relationship, you know, we haven't seen a very good exploration to, at this point of the relationship between a lady's maid and her lady. Yeah. 
Like it's you know, it, you know it's it's, it's, there. it's around the edges, but well, it's we like, saw it more with Anna and the girls earlier on. I feel well, like well, we saw it more in series one as right, well, right? But it's still you know. I want to see the breakdown. Yeah. You know, we, I feel like we hear a lot about ladies maids, the difficulty of training a new ladies maid. Why is that so difficult? You know, let me see. No, but the, I mean, really the best exploration we get of it in this series is with Mac O'Brien at the end. I know. And wouldn't it be more interesting to see this conflict between McGee and O'Brien, have them kind of, you know, get over it. And then have to sort of like rebuild their trust, but like you know, right, McG exactly. and have McG make a play. Like you know, you've been with me for X number of years. I feel that we have a pretty good working relationship. I don't want you to go. Right. Right. Give us a reason to invest. Yeah. That's all we want, That's Julian all- Fellows. <laughs> we will follow you almost anywhere if it's you make true. it reasonable. I mean, we watched this whole season, and we sure did, and we don't regret it. But no. Anyway. All right, so we're gonna take a short break from the recap to catch up on these telegrams from our cousins. Which Uh, there are many. We have 11 pages (laughs) with narrow margins. So uh, if you hate this, just keep skipping forward. But uh, we got so many great letters of all stripes and types. You know, just reactions to things that had happened. You know, historical information about things mentioned in the series, which is actually our first one, which Tom will now read to you. Uh, this relates actually to the finale. Listen, I was going to try to organize these in some sort of chronological order, <laughs> uh, but then it was like, oh, we, if we don't record this podcast literally right now, <laughs> it's not getting recorded. Yeah. So it's going to be a bit all over the place. Right. But uh, we trust that you'll bear with us here. Yeah. Uh, so yes, this first telegram comes from Cousin Kathy. Writes, Dear Cousins, info on dear old Sonny Marlboro. Uh, from 2011 in Vanity Fair. With its 2,000 acres, 187 rooms, and masterpiece theater lifestyle, Blenheim Palace eclipses even the British monarchy's homes in the eyes of many. And for the three centuries since Queen Anne bestowed the land on the first Duke of Marlborough, is his heirs have battled to keep it going. In a rare interview with the 85-year-old 11th Duke, known as Sonny, and his fourth wife, the, quote, exotic and wealthy Lily, James Reginato explores the sacrifices made in Blenheim's name, from loveless marriages to a bitter legal battle, while Jonathan Becker shoots exclusive photos of the palace and its private quarters. And Cousin Kathy did send us the links, so we'll probably just have kind of like a little thread on the Facebook page mm-hmm. uh, with those links, you know, in the comments and everything, so you can check out these photos and, you know, yeah. get the full get the full Sunny Marlboro picture. Right. Uh, there's also a link to a uh, something from The Guardian about uh, the aristocrats, Blenheim Palace, that says, it turns out the English aristocracy does have a use after all. Not currently convinced. No, I'm really not sure that that's true at all. Uh, uh, but there is a picture of Sonny. And there's an article from the Daily Mail. Uh, bar an unfortunate incident at the age of 13 when he accidentally peppered Viscount Cowdray's gamekeeper with gunshot during a grouse shoot. Hey, he was the Dick Cheney of his day. <laughs> he was, except at the tender age of 13. Right, that's, which is a little more excusable. Yeah, that's some precocious shooting there. <laughs> uh, the life of Lord Edward Spencer Churchill has been remarkable for its level-headedness. Even his glitzy show business connections, hanging out with rapper P. Diddy, and dating Jonathan Aitken's love child, glossy model Patrina Kashagi, have not drawn him into the kind of misadventures that have plagued his half-brother Jamie, the Marcus of Blandford. 
To the delight of his father, the Duke of Marlborough, who would have loved his second son to have been inheritor of the fabulous Blenheim estate, the non-drinking, non-smoking Edward has moved smoothly from from Eton and Cambridge to his current career as a partner in private investment firm Sun Capital. Partners. Oh, so this is a new yeah. Duke of Marlborough. Yeah, this is this is the latest and greatest in Marlborough dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what the misadventures have been that are not along the lines of dating somebody's love child that's a glossy model. Mm-hmm. Like it sort of seems like that's pretty standard yeah. for aristocracy. Yeah. And then there's another article from the Daily Mail from 2012 that says, After a lifelong battle with drugs, three spells in prison, and a very public estrangement from his father, James Blanford has been written off by many as the charming, handsome, but hopelessly feckless black sheep of one of Britain's most famous aristocratic families. Well, that's the point that they're making about Lord Edward oh, up top, is right. that he, yeah. uh, he has managed to navigate being an aristocrat seamlessly whereas uh this jamie fellow uh wow he's he's had some troubles he clearly has yes yeah so, so cousin kathy says shrimpy was right uh so thank you yeah cousin kathy. fascinating of, we'll post those links yeah there's a, a lot of interesting stuff in there this is uh you know to see what the aristocracy has been getting up to uh-huh. in the last 90 years next we have a telegram from cousin Kristen. She says, hello, I am a new fan of Downton Abbey, just discovering this series this season. I did a marathon viewing of the first two series just in time for this season's third episode. I loved it so much, I had to find some podcasts to get me through the week until the next episode. I came across yours and was sadly turned off quickly because of your hate for Mr. Bates. (laughs) Anna is my absolute favorite, and I grew to love Bates because of her. In any case, I almost was turned off from your podcast completely if it wasn't for the two of you being so damn funny. So I will let the Bates hate slide for a good laugh. I just quickly wanted to throw out there my ideas about the Anna Bates love story. First off, the whole setting is very reminiscent of a modern-day restaurant. Just as downstairs is a mishmash of mostly degenerates, so is a restaurant staff. And when you are the lone, intelligent, normal person in the crew hoping to find love, it's easy to latch on to the first person that deserves some respect as it was with Anna when Bates arrived. I agree with the reasoning of Bates being how he is because of the battered spouse syndrome issues, but I also chalk it up to him just not believing that he is at all deserving of the love and adoration from a woman like Anna. Vera, he would have believed he did deserve, that wretched witch. Anyway, I also see Anna as being a bit of a codependent, perhaps, and, well, who could be more perfect for her than Bates? So many problems for her to fix. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely adore the character of Anna and Mrs. Hughes, but I think she and Bates are a good fit. I loved their love story from the very beginning, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it will develop with them reunited. Well, thanks for all the laughs, Cousin Kristen of New Hampshire. Thank you, Cousin Kristen. Well, thank you for not writing us off entirely. Yeah, and that's, that's, and that's a good analogy about the restaurant, too. I, mm-hmm. I like that thought. Well, and I mean, we were totally on, when our, on our first pass, mm-hmm. we were like, all right, Anna and Bates. Look, I mean, and our problems with Bates... We're not even going to get into that here. Because right. right now, our problems with Bates are primarily, like, Julian Fellows related. Right, right. But, um, you know, I am actually interested, now that he's out of prison, maybe mm-hmm. they'll have a plot line that isn't so completely stupid. I'm definitely interested to see where that goes. And again, we we didn't know what we had until it was taken away from us. Having right. Bates downstairs really stabilizes all of those relationships. It does, yeah. So we're not quite willing to pull the shank Bates. Uh, <laughs> you know, banner or whatever at this point. But um, <laughs> we, we're, we're excited open, that he's back. We, we're open to being convinced by him next year. 
Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Jess, who writes, Greetings. While I was listening to your latest podcast, I realized that I learned more about Catholic history during Tom Repeat's history than I did in my entire childhood growing up Catholic. And I then realized I learned more about the Anglican Church throughout your podcast than I did in the many years in which I was an Episcopalian, the American version of the Anglican Church. My family left the Catholic Church when I was 15, and we became Episcopalian, which I can assure you is basically diet Catholic. They still do the stand-up, sit-down, shout, shout, shout. They just don't make you feel so guilty about sinning. And recently, someone suggested a different Downton podcast, and while I listen to it, I simply don't like it. I love the background slash history you guys go into and your snark. If I'm going to listen to a recap, then I want it to feel more like a conversation with a friend than a promo for PBS in the show. So thank you for keeping it all real. If I could get my friends to watch the show, maybe I could have my own snarky conversation about Downton, but I haven't been really been able to get most into it. Plus, everyone I know that does watch likes Bates and does not understand why I hate him so much. Like my local PBS station, who is trying to encourage you to donate by offering a free Bates tote bag. I wanted to call them and say, offer me a Shank Bates tote bag and I will donate. So in conclusion, thank you for keeping me company for this past year, every Sunday night slash Monday morning. I am so happy to download the latest podcast. Cheers, Cousin Jess. Aw, that's so sweet. That is so sweet. Yeah, and you know... We've learned a lot about the history of the Catholic and Anglican churches through this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Which, despite being lapsed, we're still very interested in Catholic <laughs> history. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and, you know, we're glad to hear that you like our podcast so much. We we like to think that we're uh, we're pretty good. Yeah, we're happy. Yeah, we like it. So thank you for listening. We hope that you do find some friends. Uh, maybe, you know, meetup.com. <laughs> I don't know. Sure. You know. Well, uh, look. Fun loving gals seeks snarky conversation about <laughs> Downton Abbey. You know, give it a shot. I'm I'm not one to talk myself when it comes to socializing. <laughs> that's, so. that's very true. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Lori. Greetings, cousins. I found your podcast a few weeks ago and am enjoying it immensely. Your creative interpretation of the goings-on in the Abbey truly added my enjoyment of the story. Keep up the good work. My question relates to a scene in the last episode you covered, Season 3, Episode 6. It bothered me when I watched it and again when you mentioned it during your recap. Anna runs out onto the grounds with good news for Mary and Edith regarding Mr. Bates' imminent release. While Mary and Edith both seem happy about the development, they all three just stand there awkwardly smiling. Was it totally frowned upon to hug a servant? Anna dresses these women, does their hair, and listens to their secrets. Are they not allowed to touch her to offer some congratulations, encouragement, or support? Upstairs and downstairs mingle without incident at the servant's ball, and Sybil must have touched Branson a few times. I would have liked to see a little more feeling in that scene. Any insights? Thanks for giving me hours of entertainment every week. Yours in curiosity, Cousin Lori. So I emailed uh, Evangeline Holland of Mm EdwardianPromenade.com with regard to that question. I haven't heard back yet. Okay. I mean, but I can only assume that that was, in fact, a pretty ironclad rule. Yeah. Well, and certainly, I don't think Mary's hugged anyone in her life. That's like, true. I, like, I'm only sort of... That may be true, I, actually. We saw her hug some people this season, All right, at least. fine. She never hugged it. She never meant it. Right. Well, she, you, she's hugged people in formal greeting. Right. Right. Um, but not out of pure joy. Yeah. No, I... Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. But we'll see if we get a ruling on yes. that one. Okay, back to the plot arcs. Uh, the next one is, oh, it's a classic. It's the Bates is in prison plot arc. Murder prison! Yeah. Boo! Boo. It was hard. I, I learned things from the synopsis because I could almost not even focus on the scenes that took place in murder prison. Yeah. Like my eyes would just drift. <laughs> 
Um, There's a psychological block in this house. Yeah. Uh, we did learn that they kind of half-assed the clothes of the prisoners, mm-hmm. by the way. They they looked at some pictures, and they're like, oh, that's horrible looking. And then they just found some costumes that they already had yeah. <laughs> and used them, uh, which is fine. I mean, because they needed, you know, 30 of them or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, he, quote, roughs up his cellmate, who then chooses not to shank him in return, uh, but instead tries to frame him along with some guards. Uh, they all try to frame Bates by uh, stashing some twigs in his cell. I'm pretty sure it was opium. <laughs> no, it, it is uh, listed in the PBS synopsis as drugs, which makes me laugh because it's like when I was a kid and there'd be anti-drug right, messages. Right, right. Like, oh no, drugs. <laughs> um, yeah, and so the the guard then continues his revenge by preventing Anna's and Bates' letters from reaching each other, uh, giving them both the sad for a, a while. Uh, but then... <laughs> <laughs> Please continue. Yes. Uh, but then Bates uh, frames the framers. Oh, by, no! Yeah, by, I guess, getting drugs somewhere and then stashing them, mm-hmm. or, you know, and... If I learned anything from Oz... You can get drugs in prison. It's not that hard. <laughs> Fair enough. Try yeah. as the warden might. Yes. Bates aided at every turn from an omniscient friend who takes a shine to him for some reason. Well, I mean, he says he doesn't like Bates' cellmate. Craig. Right. I know you have a mental block against the names of these people, but... <laughs> I do. Well, just, again, we learn literally nothing about any of them. But they're bad because they don't like Bates. The, except for that one guy and then that other guy. Right. Like, what are they in prison for? What's the... Di- I mean, nothing. And that's... I don't... It's not that I want to learn more about these characters, but if we're not going to learn anything about them, why are we spending time with them? This entire plot arc would have really been improved by the inclusion of Harold Perrineau. It would have. Like and most just, plot it, arcs. And just the intro where it's like prisoner number 970321 crime whatever yeah. sentence whatever like what are they in for that just that basic amount do they have any friends on the outside or any of them married or any you know what who are these people but they're just you know they're just plot devices is all they are um so yeah, yeah. like you know a 100 level television writing class would have beaten the shit out of julian fellows <laughs> just for this plot indeed um, but yeah, at the end, Bates and Anna get each other, get each other's letters, and we're all apparently delighted by that. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, so yeah, repetitiveness, sky high, the framing attempts are exactly the same with the same bundle of twigs. Um, twigs apparently not being allowed in English prisons. Well, you could. <laughs> Have you ever been in an English prison? Were you allowed twigs? If so, we want to hear your story. Well, and it's, and I, I could almost see it too. Like, you know, like Richard the Lionheart made some arbitrary rules <laughs> about twigs and prisons and nobody's ever changed it since. <laughs> you know? They were a symbol of Edward Longshanks. Uh, thematic interest, none. Because it does not in any way relate to the changes in the fabric of society. Well, Again, right. if they had fleshed out any of these characters, were any of these guys in the war? Yeah. You know, maybe Craig that's, doesn't like Bates because that, Bates didn't have to fight in the war. That's such a great idea. Uh-huh. That's that's so great. I don't know why we aren't allowed to help write that nabbing. No, we could really help out. I'm telling we you. We could be fixers, man. Yeah. like we could, up. We couldn't write it, but we could help. Yeah, we could definitely help. Um... 
Yeah, but I mean, it just it, it doesn't tie in with anything. There's nothing about the contemporary justice system. Right. It's just, you know, this is the soapiest plot of them all because it has absolutely no foot in reality. Yeah. Yeah. Characters behaving obstinately for no clear reason. Sure. All of them. And uh, does anything change? No. Nothing changes. Bates does eventually get out of prison. Well, but that's... I didn't count that in... Like, this is just his in, intra-prison Oh, squabbles. okay. Okay. You know, that's... I've got that as a, the, the next plot okay, arc here. Gotcha. But oh, in, you do? Yeah. Um, but yeah, in this... All the stuff with the framing and the letters and all that just is just a time filler. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating. So the next art is Anna tries to free Bates because Anna's amazing. Yes. Again, you know, people who love Bates, we love Anna. We want Anna to be happy. Right. She has decided that Bates is what would make her happy. We yeah. have no real objection to this. Right. Uh, now, despite the, frankly, overwhelming evidence against Bates. <laughs> yes. Exhibit A, his face. Right. Look at that guy. Clearly a murderer. Uh, Anna Bates, P.I., is convinced that the truth is out there. She goes through Vera Bates' things, uh, which she naturally has access to. Uh, that's standard. No, no, you know what? It does make sense oh, because they had the house that they were letting to somebody else. So okay. she would have had to go through the house. Oh, right, because it was transferred to her before. Yeah, upon, well, okay. and upon yeah. Vera Bates' death. I mean, it's not like there was anybody else to claim all of her shit. Yeah, that's so. true. Uh, that leads her to Mrs. Bartlett, who can't actually prove Bates' innocence. But then Bates realizes... That she... Because she says that, no, he did it. She was afraid of him, all this sort of thing. But then she tells this all to Bates, and Bates is like, aha, but because she said something about the lamplight and pastry in her fingernails, yeah. that proves that... that she, she's already proved Well, because innocence. they decide that Vera baked a poison into the pie to kill herself... <laughs> It's a frame. Like this is really yeah. again. No, this is this is my favorite thing, and all the that the PBS synopsis ends by saying that Mrs. Bartlett finally tells quote the truth, namely that Mrs. Bates committed suicide with a poison pie and made it look like Bates is doing a poison pie. This is the actual thing that happened. A poison I, pie. I, at some point, Julian Fellows, you've got to take a step back. And be like, really? Did I just write that? Mm-hmm. A poison pie. <laughs> like, that's your MacGuffin? <laughs> that's... <laughs> and then again, Vera Bates, who was one note, but was kind of an interesting character. She was character. an interesting character. She had an axe to grind, and she, she ground she it had... down to the nub, man. <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't seem like her to me. Granted, but... if anyone wanted to kill me, <laughs> a poison pie would probably be a good way to go. Please note cousins. <laughs> I will not be eating any pies that you send me because now I'm worried. <laughs> right. At this point, you'd, it's only... Yeah, yeah. I'd be suspicious. Right. Knowing what you know about my proclivity for pie. <laughs> and the fact that if you could trick me into eating a poison pie, I would probably do it. If anybody wants to send Kelly a pie, consider a pie gift certificate instead. Yes, that would be wise. Unless you own the chain or have <laughs> the therein where you can be like, oh, if this gift certificate comes in, give her one of our special pies. <laughs> From... Mafia Pies Incorporated. <laughs> anyway, so Anna gets Bates out of prison, which is a nice victory for Anna, considering she gets to do nothing else of interest in the entire show. Right. Except for buy a garter. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So repetitiveness here is high. It's just Anna. Well, this, again, this, this is one of many plot arcs, particularly the beginning, that lasts for like five episodes and only needed to last one. Yeah. If that. 
again, no thematic interest. We get no insight into how difficult it is for a woman to be privately investigating something. Right. How difficult is it to overturn a verdict at this point? Yeah. How difficult was it? Like, I mean, you know, everybody loves Anna, so she got all the time off she needed, uh-huh. so that's fine. And they did talk a little bit about how it was holding, you know, a problem that she was gone. Like, yeah. It was at least mentioned in a line. Um, but yeah. Um, you know, it gave her something to talk about with Mary and Matthew occasionally. But like, it's just, it's dull. Right. Character behaving obstinately for no clear reason. Yeah. Mrs. Bartlett just, uh, yeah. she's, it's almost as if Mrs. Bartlett's an awkward plot device rather than a character. <laughs> Perish the thought. <laughs> What's worse, her or the poison pie? <laughs> um, I'm going to go with her because at least the poison pie isn't supposed to have agency. <laughs> That's, that is true. <sighs> yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously something changes. Bates is out of prison. And despite the fact that he should never have been there in the first place, like, you know, that whole thing was kind of a dud. But... I mean, you know, the fact it does wind up being interesting that, you know, people that Thomas had taken over his job and that creates some conflict when mm-hmm. he comes back. So there's at least something there. Next arc is Mrs. Hughes has a lump. Uh, Where? Uh, in, in her breast. Oh, no. Yeah. That's bad. It is bad. It's scary. Uh, and she confides that Mrs. Patmore, who encourages her to go see Dr. Clarkson. Uh, and so... Uh, in the interval while she's waiting for the test results, uh, Carson Boy Detective <laughs> uh, manages to figure out what's going on. Uh, and he tells McGee, who assures Mrs. Hughes that she will always have a place at Downton, which reading the synopsis of that made me a little misty. Like, Aww. God, that was so nice. Yeah. Um, and then it turns out that she's okay and Carson sings about it. Oh, he's yeah. a cheerful Charlie again. Yeah. And this is... I think the first arc that we've covered here that we are 100% on yep. board with. Um, like, not much thematic interest. I mean, medicine was kind of a theme in this series, but it doesn't seem like so much more of a motif than a yeah, theme, I yeah. guess. Well, well, again, it wasn't explored in any great detail. Right, right. We still don't know what Mary's magical baby-having was, <laughs> so... Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean this one just a soap opera plot here, but, but again, like we, we don't will, we're not complaining we about it. We would watch Mrs. Hughes in Bates's plot line. Like, that's <laughs> how much we love that character. Yeah. We will watch her do anything. Yeah. Um and I mean it was just it was nicely written and and pretty nicely handled. The Carson mm-hmm. stuff was a little weird at times, but nothing yeah. nothing major. But nobody was acting obstinate for no reason. Yeah. Nothing changes, but it introduces the possibility of this major change and you get to see A pretty wide swath of people, you know, reacting to the possibility of that change. Yeah, it's taken very seriously. And so we see... Everybody's life would change drastically if Mrs. Hughes, A, was really ill, or B, died. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's so important to the running of the house and, and... And the staff. Yeah. No, and it was... McGee, man. That was such a great scene. It was. It was just, you know, and that's sort of why, you know, that's the side of the Granthams that I feel like we didn't get to see as much. Yeah. You know, we got to see that when Mrs. Uh, Patmore was losing her eyesight and she went and, you know, mm-hmm. they are they are very compassionate. And again, they could have tied that into Lord Grantham's 
uh, resistance to changing the way that they run things because again, it's allowed him to be very magnanimous to people. Yeah. And I think they did get to that by the end of that. By the end of the series, they'd finally figured out why Lord Grantham was being obstinate and, right. and got to that. Yeah. But for most, it mostly just seemed like like he's being a big baby, which is what he mostly seems like right. most of the time. Which, again, I don't think is an accident. We don't mind him being a big baby right? in general. I mean, it irritates the living crap out of us. Yeah. But, but it, doesn't feel, it doesn't feel bankrupt from a plot and character development mm-hmm. scenario. Yeah. Viewpoint. That's what I meant. Yeah. Next up, we have Isabel and the Whore. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Isabel starts working at the Whore Institute in York, where she attempts to help fallen women by ineffectually teaching them to sew. <laughs> right. Uh, especially since they're just in it for the free food. And yeah. You know what? Look, these ladies did not get where they are by <laughs> wanting to learn a skill. Okay. <laughs> They had the option. They were like, I got this skill between my legs. Right. Like, and I don't have to do anything. Like, so you're saying you'll give me food to watch you sew? Mm-hmm. Great. That's a good deal. Yeah, I love <laughs> like, that. Uh, I can leave by seven, right? That's right <laughs> about the dusky hour when was- the Johns come trolling for poon. <laughs> So I was like, oh, Note. yes, I have to get back to my country estate. Note, slang may not be accurate. <laughs> Freshen your drink, Captain. <laughs> Ethel shows up at the Horn Institute and then leaves uh, about 73 separate times. <laughs> right. Ethel finally reveals that she's decided to give Charlie up to the Bryants, his natural grandparents, mm-hmm. and eventually she does. Isabel feels bad for her and decides to hire her to work at her house, causing uh, the long-suffering Mrs. Bird <laughs> to leave rather than get whore all over her and her food. Yes. Everybody is scandalized. Ethel has some slapstick in the kitchen <laughs> trying to learn how to cook. And Isabel continues to be a bizarre mix of charitable and ice cold towards Ethel. Right. That that was the weirdest thing about this arc all the way through is – or just – and it's – I mean, I have to say, it seems to be a kind of consistent character choice that uh-huh. Isabel is. So it's not – Well, and again, and I wish that that would get explored more because she is this woman who in her capacity as sort of a – She's middle class, but she's got a position, particularly now that her son is the heir to this estate. Right. But she seems like a woman who's not particularly suited to charitable work. Yeah. She lacks... Intellectually, she engages with the idea that she ought to be improving other people's lot in Mm -hmm, life. mm -hmm. But she seems peculiarly (laughs) ill-suited towards it. Yeah. The Dowager Countess has a softer touch. Yeah. With, you know, the yeah. common man. It's true. You know, I think I think that Isabel doesn't recognize the inherent dignity of people in yeah. a certain way. Which again supports our theory that she's somewhere on the autism spectrum. It does. It does. Yeah. Um at any rate, Sybil dies and then Isabel invites all of the Crawley women over for a meal and Ethel convinces Mrs. Patmore to teach her how to cook, uh, which wasn't that hard apparently. Yeah. You'd think that Isabel, rather than being a complete bitch about it, <laughs> could have, you know, just rung up some friend. Like, surely in at the Horn Institute, they have someone teaching those life skills. Yeah, that like, makes Like, hey, why don't you come down and stay for a week and teach this particular whore how to cook? <laughs> 
at this point, though, Isabel seems to have cut ties with the Horror Institute. Right. They will never be heard from again, it would seem. Uh, Lord Grantham tries to spoil that party, but is foiled. And then the Dowager Countess uh, gets Ethel a job near her son, Charlie, uh, and employs Mrs. Bryant to come in and assure Ethel, you know, she can see Charlie occasionally, keep tabs, and they'll figure out some way to square this both with the abominable Mr. Bryant <laughs> yeah. and Charlie, because they do want to kind of protect him mm-hmm. and make sure that they're not overtly traumatizing him but again this arc in particular actually made me think about you know child rearing and literally no matter what your sort of you know (laughs) situation is your kid is just going to be fucked up yeah so i'm just not going to worry about that again not pregnant (laughs) thinking about how my life choices are possibly going to traumatize my child (laughs) yes and deciding not to care yeah which i think might be the first step (laughs) that's that's a good attitude right right cousins do you have kids? <laughs> have you traumatized them? If so, we want to hear your story. <laughs> yeah, this is an arc that was terrible at the beginning, like really bad, because it was just Ethel showing up and leaving and showing up and leaving. And just, you know, they should have just cut out the first, I don't know, two or three episodes that this arc appeared in. All they had to do is have her show up at the Horror Institute. Yeah, and just... Like, and, you know, again, Julian Fellows, we're not stupid. We don't need to see Ethel out whoring to know that (laughs) Ethel's out whoring. I had assumed that she was. Yeah, Because she couldn't get work. Right. That's what women do when they can't get work. Yeah. Or, um, excuse me, that's what women do when they can't get non-sex work. Right. Again, we're a very pro-sex worker podcast here. Yeah. But, yeah, and, and... But it it did kind of turn around. I think, you know, Mrs. Bryant gets a lot of credit for that because the the Bryants, both of them, are just oddly enjoyable to me. Well, you know what? I think that they're some of the highest caliber actors they have in minor roles. Yeah. They, you know, they were brought in almost as one-offs. Right. Uh, Mr. Bryant, again, I think we've discussed this, is married to Mrs. Hughes, Mm -hmm. uh, Phyllis Logan. Yeah. So, you know, it's easy for him to, you know, pop in and and do a guest spot. Right. But still, and him in particular, because he's such a one-note villain, but the actor does a very nice job, like... Well, but it's also supported by Mrs. Bryant, because... Yeah, yeah. Remember the scene where Ethel brought the baby into the dining room? And mm. I did love how, how Isabel had categorized Ethel into her mind. She's like, oh, you were the maid who brought the baby in. Right. Which is exactly... Yeah, that was a nice... That was a very human, non-autism spectrum kind of thing <laughs> to say. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, um... You know, when Mr. Bryant storms out of the room, Mrs. Bryant, you know, apologizing and saying, you know, ever since we lost our son, he he can't deal with his grief. Mm-hmm. And we just see in just these little glimpses between them, the portrait of this marriage that's just maybe never been great to begin with, mm-hmm. but particularly destabilized by the war and the loss of their son mm-hmm. and the fact that they never thought they'd have to cope with this particular right. situation. Right. I mean, I think particularly when you're a person of privilege, you, that was the thing, that was the thing that got brought up in one of the featurettes. Like, Julian Fellows was saying there's this modern idea about people who are wealthier or have a good position are somehow cosseted and, and, and spared these trials. Right. And he was like, that is not a modern idea. That's the entire impetus for drama. Yeah. Like, in Greece... Yeah. When, you know, theater was invented, all of the characters were these kings and gods. Mm-hmm. And the entire point was to communicate the universality of human suffering. Yeah. And 
it's insulting, frankly, that <laughs> he thinks that this well, is the modern idea. Yeah, I mean, like there have know, always Shakespeare. Been, hello, yeah, there have always been people who had more. You know, even in the caveman days, you know, some people were better at hunting, and <laughs> you know, their child could still get eaten by whatever large predators were. You know, saber tooth <laughs> tigers. Everything I know about cavemen is pretty much from the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie. <laughs> so I don't feel very confident speaking about what large predators might have eaten. Look, they had a, they had a huge historical research team on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it's not this modern idea, and right. and I thought they handled that arc really well. And again, yeah. that's an arc that didn't necessarily have to go anywhere. Yeah, we well, were it, really unhappy with where it was in series two in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and some of those. You know, criticism still hold here. It was just very repetitive. It's like, yeah. why do we care about this person? Uh, you know, despite our love of Mrs. Hughes, we're like, come on, give her something to do. But yeah. I thought that the, you know, not argument, but, you know, the difference in opinions between what Ethel thought Ethel should do, what Mrs. Hughes felt Ethel should do, and what Isabel felt Ethel should do. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where Isabel can't escape from her privilege and her right. sort of disdain for people of a lower class, right. which she is so which she, very adamant that it is not an issue for her. Right. But um, so clearly is. But Mrs. Hughes, you know, once again, ah, Mrs. Hughes, for as much as I didn't like the way that they handled her relationship with Ethel in series two, they more than made up for it in series three because, you know, she's saying, you know, all these things about until there's a kinder world, mm-hmm. this is the kind of choice. And yeah. Mrs. Hughes is so compassionate mm-hmm. while still not wearing rose colored glasses about Ethel's options mm-hmm. and what Ethel has to do to support herself. Yeah. Yeah. I did find it really unbelievable that when Isabel brought her back to talk about, um, you know, coming to work for her when Ethel was like, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not being a prostitute anymore because I don't have Charlie. Right. I guess she did say she would starve. Yeah. But it's like yeah. you had have been doing something. But, you know, well, I mean, again, we begging, don't. We don't. Know? Yeah, that's true. We don't get a solid picture of it. Yeah. But um, again, just wishing that we had a little bit more insight into certain things because yeah. Ethel the prostitute is infinitely more interesting than Ethel the maid and Ethel, the person who was, you know, hanging right. out in that weird house. Right. But I mean, you know, Julian Fellows doesn't know, doesn't, he, he has shown no ability or interest in the lower class that isn't in domestic service. True. But it would have been Which nice is, to see know. a sort of through line. You remember she wanted to, you know, be a film star and she wanted to get out of service. And mm-hmm. the fact that all of her dreams are not only not going to come to fruition, just simply can't. Yeah. I mean, there might have been the barest chance that she could have made a better life for herself, mm-hmm. but it didn't happen. And the reason that it didn't happen is tied specifically to the fact that she's a woman right, living in this society. And it would yeah. have been nice to see that explored. But Yeah. But overall, like I say, it was an arc that I hated initially and kept thinking was going to be awful. Mm-hmm. And then now I look back at it uh, as a whole and I'm like, that turned out to be reasonably interesting. It really did. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's very repetitive at the beginning, but it got better. Mm -hmm. Thematic interest was very high. It wasn't explored as fully as maybe it could have been, but pretty good. Right. Well, but this, this, I I really like the, the importance of reputation 
and your name and how it's maintained and how mm-hmm. it's spread, which has always been, you know, always been a big theme in Downton Abbey. And it's such a British theme. Mm-hmm. And I, I've talked about this before, but just that you always have to be introduced everywhere you're going and like your reputation always has to be carried well, with you. Well, you have to have known. letters of reference even for friendship. Right. You know, right. it's not like you can just meet somebody and then go on Facebook right. and be like, oh, I don't think I want to mess around with that guy right and that's just not something that's ever been as true in america yeah i mean sure and i'm sure in upper class society in america at this time it was the same but it was but if you still... weren't if you couldn't gain entry to that society there you know it's foolish to say that there's not a class system in america but it's right. a not as stratified b i guess being more diffuse is part of that but like there's yeah. there's much you know there's many more levels that you can participate in. Mm-hmm. And those levels don't necessarily care about each other. Yeah. Well, and England is so, because it's small and it's also so centralized. Yes. You know, and that's partly because it's a monarchy. So there's, you know, you've got the king and that's sort of the center of the social hierarchy, even though it's just largely symbolic. But then, you know, there are the people who have pre- been mm-hmm. presented to the king and those who haven't. And then, the, you know, you can track it all well, the way through. Well, high society in America... It relates to the presidency in a way, and it. Re- but I mean, again, we don't have. Yeah, well, and you know, Britain had the parliament, right? The parliamentary system. So I mean, I guess it relates somehow. But you know, there, you know, there are aristocrats who are friends with the president. There are aristocrats who are friends with senators or, or yeah. Supreme Court judges or whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, a senator might be around much longer than a president. True. You know. So you know, there's just you know, there's there's a lot of reasons that it's different here. Yeah, but I. I always like seeing that and mm-hmm. seeing that difference. Uh, yeah, and, you know, Ethel is now an ex-whore. Uh, oh, right. And she seems to have, you know, gotten the best possible outcome considering her situation. Yeah, considering where she started out at the beginning of the season, she is set to have a decent lower class, you know, working class life. Uh-huh. So, yeah. And now we will switch back into letters mode. That's right. Keep it fresh. Keeping it fresh. First up is a telegram from Cousin Sean, who writes, I love Downton Abbey. I love the podcast. Who would have guessed there were not one but two brilliant wits among us? Simply (laughs) superb. I am writing on this occasion to express my thoughts on a matter that has troubled me since series one, and that is the anachronistic treatment of homosexuality. I have tolerated this abomination so far, but after watching the most recent episode, which aired on February 10th, I can no longer keep my silence. My concern began when Mrs. O'Brien first discovered Thomas's secret. I found her to be surprisingly tolerant of his amorous proclivities in a way that would not have come so naturally to a woman of her class at that time. Let's face it. No one would mistake O'Brien for one of the bright young things. I also found Thomas to be just a bit too calm about the discovery of his true nature, contrary to what would have probably happened, that O'Brien report him to the authorities or immediately blackmail him, and that Thomas leave Downton in fear that his life was in danger of ruin. The two formed an amiable amiable bond, much like a gay man and his fag hag of the late 20th century. Highly improbable. Fast forward almost a decade, and O'Brien finds a chance to use the secret she had concealed for so long. Episode after episode, she encourages Thomas to pursue the very handsome, sexually ambiguous Jimmy. After one final push from O'Brien, a doubting Thomas musters the courage to enter the young footman's bedroom. When word gets out of what happens, I found the reaction of the entire cast to be so enlightened on the topic of homosexuality that I needed to re-suspend my willing suspension of disbelief, making the episode quite difficult to stomach. (laughs) Mr. Carson, while admittedly repulsed, states he understood that Thomas was twisted by nature, implying that he was not at fault for his abhorrent behavior. It is more likely he would have reacted to this news as he did regarding Ethel, the village whore, when she began working for Cousin Isabel. 
He mentions later in the episode that everyone had already suspected Thomas of being homosexual. Doubtful, as at the time, very few people recognized a deviant when they saw one, and if they had, they would have dealt with the matter much earlier. Which brings us to Mrs. Hughes, who said it was not the first time she had encountered a person of that sort and preached leniency. For real? Hasn't she been sheltered in the bowels of Downton since the dawn of time? Even Lord Grantham was uncharacteristically tolerant, going as far as revealing to his valet that back in the day he was apparently one hot ticket at Eton. These sorts of things were simply not discussed while at school, and certainly not later in life. And then Bates tops off the anachronisms by using the phrase batting for the other team as if that was in common use at the time, which I suspect it was not. I bet the true Lord Grantham would have responded by saying, what? Thomas is planning to bat with the villagers in our cricket match and not the household? Dismiss him at once. And as for Thomas himself, he also seems to have been transported 70 years into the future. He clearly understands that he is a homo by birth and a victim of an intolerant society that just doesn't understand the plight of people like him. Bullshit. The truth is there was very little consciousness of what it was to be gay at the time. Men who were inclined to have sex with other men did not self-identify as gay. They married and had children, much like Oscar Wilde, and at best had same-sex encounters on the side. Most gave this behavior up after marriage to live a normal and decent life. Many, except perhaps those in large urban areas like London, Berlin, and New York, had no reason to suspect that the other men weren't exactly like them. It is more likely that if Thomas did understand that he could only love a man, he would consider himself immoral, depraved, and perhaps mentally ill. He, and certainly Mr. Carson, would not have understood that he was homosexual by nature. He would have been full of self-loathing. Remember that it wasn't until 1973 that the American Psychiatric Association delisted homosexuality as a disease, and that sodomy laws were invalidated in the United States by the Supreme Court only in 2003. More recently, acceptance of homosexuality has caused a major rift in the Anglican Church. The only characters that reacted appropriately for a series set in the 1920s were Alfred and Jimmy, and even they had to be coaxed into their aggressive stance on what to do about the Thomas problem. Them, and of course the police, who showed up and interrupted a perfectly civil cricket match to arrest Thomas's ass and haul him to prison. If portraying the Crawleys and their staff as uncommonly open-minded about homosexuality is an attempt by Julian Fellows to maintain a loyal gay audience, take it from me, he would have done much better by not killing off Mr. Pamuk in a single episode. <laughs> For a more insightful portrayal of homosexuality in the 20th century, I highly recommend the films Another Country, based on the 1981 play by Julian Mitchell and Maurice, which is based on the novel of the same title by E.M. Forster, one he had written in 1914 but was not published until after his death in 1971. Perhaps you can make a future podcast on these films in the Downton off-season. And if I had my druthers, I would award this week's best evasion to the entire cast for evading the sensibilities of the 1920s entirely. Yours eternally, Cousin Sean of Washington, D.C. Okay. Yes. Thank you for writing, Sean. Absolutely. This was actually one of my favorite telegrams that we received. Yeah. Because yeah. I kind of disagree. I'm kind of disagreeing, not because I'm thinking that he's wrong per se. Yeah, I think... I, I gotta say, you're probably largely correct. Yes. I would say there are some things I take issue with, one of which is that I do think the fact that that sort of thing went on at school and was commonly acknowledged to go, have gone on mm -hmm. at school, like that, I, I just think, you know, that's my understanding of the time period. Like, it wasn't a matter that would have been discussed often or much. Would it have been discussed by somebody of Lord Grantham's generation? Well, that's harder for me to say. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Well, again, I mean, I definitely, you know, before we continue kind of yeah. going through this, uh, we're definitely interested in looking at another country and Maurice. Absolutely. We still haven't decided our total hiatus schedule yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll get around to that eventually. <laughs> sure we will. But, uh... 
you know, we're very interested in looking at contemporary accounts mm-hmm. because, again, you know, we weren't there. We don't know. Right. And the, the one other thing I would say, again, I, I think this is probably – this letter is probably pretty much accurate. But I would say to consider the case of Jerry Sandusky. Now, obviously – pedophilia very different from homosexuality but not in the context of this time period. exactly not in the context of this time period and when it was reported to you know joe paterno that his longtime co-worker and you know friend at this point they'd worked together for many many years had been doing this you know he basically refused to acknowledge it you know and he i'm sure felt about pedophilia the same way that people back then would have felt about homosexuality mm-hmm. but then when it's somebody that you know when you who you already know and like and want to maintain a relationship with you're going to be powerfully motivated to spin it in your own mind as best you can well and again we keep going back to the greeks on this podcast but i mean homosexuality has been around as long as people have been able to figure out that you could, you know, put a penis places other than a vagina <laughs> right? without getting too vulgar. Yes. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's an inclination that's existed mm-hmm. since history started being recorded in a really mm-hmm. self-aware kind of way. Yeah. And I mean, that was the whole point of Oscar Wilde and all those guys, you know, they, they were like, no, 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 this is good. We're going back to this platonic ideal of this older man taking this younger man under his wing and, and, you know, they're expressing their affection in this way. Right. Um, and I, you know, here's what I'll say. I think the overall reaction Definitely more enlightened than it would have been at the time. Right. And I do agree that, like, the phrase batting for the other team in particular, yes. and the idea that, that there are two teams in the world that people are on right. one or the other, that definitely I'm, I'm, I can't be. Of course, we also got out of Bates uh, quit being such a big girl's blouse. <laughs> right. Which sounds very period appropriate. <laughs> um, I mean, I just, I don't doubt that Mrs. Hughes knew somebody you know, yeah. I don't know what the origins of the word pufter are, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I like the way this was handled. I don't think it was this bald play to maintain a loyal gay audience. Although your point about keeping Mr. Pumuk <laughs> around most definitely would have, would have right. kept people around longer. Um, you know, would Thomas ever have even risked going into Jimmy's bedroom without actual incontrovertible evidence mm-hmm. that Jimmy was interested in him? Yeah. You know? Well, and I mean, I think that, I mean, to me, I kind of, you know, he was never, you, you that you never get incontrovertible evidence. Nobody ever wants to be the first one to expose themselves right. like that. So, you know, there's that. And, you know... I also just, I just can't believe that there was nobody at the time who was gay who had just independently Mm -hmm. rationalized it, you know, through his relationship with whatever higher power, the law, his family, whatever. I just don't believe there wouldn't be individual cases. I mean, attitudes about homosexuality did not change overnight, despite the fact that it feels like it in a lot of ways. And obviously... You know, you saw this huge thing, you know, the AIDS virus in the 80s went a long way to making the gay population a lot more visible. Right. And then, you know, obviously the mismanagement right. of AIDS 
Right. Uh, definitely went a long way to politicizing these people and saying, oh, we've been doing this in the dark for so long. It's time to bring it out. And then you had the yeah. 90s and the sort of rise of like riot girl feminism and just a lot more openness. Cable TV became very commonplace for people to have. You have mm-hmm. all these new outlets. And then when the internet started, and I think that's why it feels so rapid to us, but it's something that developed over time. And I mean – right. Even to the point in, you know, like the 60s where you've got like the Mattachine Society, mm-hmm. you know, advocating behind the scenes. I mean, that's only 30 years after this. Right. And granted, yes, it's in America. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the British public school system definitely has a history of these, quote unquote, platonic bonds. Mm-hmm. And anything that's part of anybody's reality isn't going to be as rigidly policed, I don't think. As, you know, these accounts from the contemporary time. Because I don't think... Ian Forrester was not gay, was he? I have no idea. Well, anyway, we should find out if he was gay. And then we can speak to that a little bit better. But I I mean, you know, I think think there are levels of inaccuracy. I mean, I think we're seeing... At at best, the best interpretation is we're seeing an anomalous mini-society in society. But there were anomalies. And, you know, you see... You see where all the characters come from, how they get to where they end up. And that's, is it anachronistic? Probably, but it's not, it doesn't violate anything that we know about the characters. Moreover, you know, this is Downton Abbey. This isn't Roots. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a soap opera. Right. People are willing to deal with the very harsh reality of a time period differently in that kind of situation right you know what i mean i mean this is this is a bit of fluff yeah despite the amount of time that we spend dissecting it like every week (laughs) right this is not telling the tale of you know an entire group of people's lives this is telling the story of a very specific group of people's lives and i think that's Mm -hmm. what separates sort of you know uh soapy miniseries from more historical miniseries yeah you know I don't think that we're necessarily supposed to draw a ton of of conclusions about the way society was run from these people li- people's lives. The things mm-hmm. that Julian Fellows have chosen has chosen to focus on, again, sometimes to the detriment of the show, right. are these very specific emotional bonds. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that we're going to look at in the hiatus. We're going to do perhaps not an exhaustive study of <laughs> homosexuality in the Edwardian and interwar years, but a, a study. Yeah, a study. Okay, uh, next we have a telegram from Cousin Karen, who writes, Ahoy, ahoy, dear cousins. I felt the urge to share with you a few Downton notes by telegram. First, I noticed a disturbing trend in the latest episodes, say the last three before the finale. It seems that every single marital makeout scene with Mary and Matthew is immediately preceded by an intimate chat about her dad. Watch for it. While I'm sure this is just a factor of fellows clumsily trying to smush all aspects of Eminem's relationship into every one of their scenes... The resulting effect is, one, Eminem discussed whether LG would be pleased with such and such and how much Mary loves LG. Two, M or M shoots M or M, a saucy side eye. Three, supposedly spicy married folks smooching ensues. I swear this happens like four or five times and it is creepy. Tangent. Did people of this era slash milieu really speak so openly of their love for their family members? The constant, I do so love papa declarations seem overly demonstrative, even for 21st century American families. But then, this might be my Jewish upbringing. We show our love through criticism and passive aggression. 
Next, I would love to hear you flesh out your take on the ethics of the Dowager Countess's scheme to have Dr. Clarkson lie about Sybil's chances for survival in order to effect a reconciliation twixt LG and McG. I found it pretty shocking, and up there with the worst deceptions and betrayals that have been perpetrated on the show. This is fine. If anything, it adds depth to her character that she would be willing to go to such lengths. And in the final scene, where she steadies herself on the mantle and turns away from the camera, it seems that even she realizes the gruesomeness of her act while still believing it a necessary evil. Are you also unsettled by this move? Of course, it immediately works like a charm, like so many of the easy fixes on this show. This lazy writing choice allows the viewer to evade hard questions about the DC's choices. Additionally, it may gratify you to know how deeply I adore your podcasts. I don't even like Downton Abbey that much, and would likely have stopped watching long ago were it not for the weekly enticement of Uppiers Downstairs. It's not only that your patented mix of goofiness and erudition is endlessly charming, something about the texture of your voices is so cheery and calming that I actually put on Uppiers Downstairs to ward off or cure bouts of stress or panic. Seriously, it works better than Xanax, and, like Xanax, goes great with alcohol. So, thanks for that, really. Your faithful cousin, Karen, a.k.a. at Porchnik on Twitter, back when I used to tweet. Porchnik? That's right. Oh, seriously, I have so been wondering where you are. (laughs) I miss tweeting with you. I understand if you need to stay off, but seriously, we had so much fun back in the day. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think the, uh, the Dr. Clarkson lying thing... I think what was kind of left ambiguous was to what extent he did end up lying. My interpretation that was that he wasn't lying that much because right. he did say he wouldn't go as far to say if they'd taken his advice, it would have saved Sybil. Right. And and that seems like a fair statement. Or, both in- you know, and it, but he also wouldn't say that she definitely would have died. Right. But it's, I think, I don't know. It really doesn't bother me. I don't think, I don't think he was lying. He was saying, look, McGee... You overestimated the odds of my being able to fix this because in the moment he didn't have time to explain right. that. I mean, if it, right. you know, we're like well, talking I about think, a life or death situation. You know, he. I mean, basically, he all he knew was if it was preeclampsia, the you know the correct correct pr- procedure was to rush her to the hospital for a C-section. Mm-hmm. He didn't have the numbers at his fingertips no, for what percentage. Because he did say he had to do research to right. find out exactly what the chances were. Right. So I think that bothered a lot of people more than it bothered us. Yeah, like um, I, like when she was first asking him, I was a little uncomfortable with it. But I think I, I mean I think the, what made it work was that do- I mean I've always trusted Doctor Clarkson's ethics for some reason. I know, like, which is weird. Sure. He seems like a pretty good doctor overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even in lying to Matthew, I mean, I think that was probably the right choice. Yeah, like at it, the time. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, we don't find it that difficult. But again, I think the point about the lazy writing, oh, making yeah. it easy to evade hard questions, undoubtedly. Right. Yeah, like, that we definitely agree with. Uh, we did notice just the Lord Granthamness of Matthew and Mary's interactions. But it's like, what are you going to do, man? Like, every aspect of their life is tied up in that house. That house is tied up in Lord Grantham. Yeah, yeah. We're just glad that our families were, you know, working class. Like, that's <laughs> ugh, gross. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know about people speaking openly of their love. And and the other that's, thing, though, yeah. is I always felt like it was a bit of, like, you know, 
methinks the lady doth protest too much, in particular when Sybil arrives at Downton for the first time since mm. her wedding. And she's like, oh, you know, my dear papa, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. she's like, oh, like, I love him so. But I feel like there's a sense of obligation every time they express something like that. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think any of them know what real love is. Yeah. That's, I mean, given the way they were all apparently raised, you know, an hour a day with Violet or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we're so glad that you uh, like our podcasts. Yes, And uh, that you use them to ward off uh, stress or panic. That's, wow. Yeah. That, we're glad that That's was great. not one of the intended uses of the <laughs> podcast. Yeah. We can't officially endorse the use of Xanax and alcohol concurrently. No. Uh, that could expose us to liability. It could. But, uh, <laughs> you know, shine on you crazy diamond. Yeah. Uh, but... Up yours downstairs and alcohol concurrently, uh, yeah. responsibly, well, away from yeah. heavy machinery. Or vehicles. Yeah. Knock yourselves out. Go for Literally. it. Literally. <laughs> with alcohol. Yes. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Natalie, who writes, Greetings, cousins. Love the show. I just discovered it two weeks ago through a commenter at the AV Club, and I've been working my way through the archive. My friends do not share my deep and abiding hatred for Bates, so it's nice to know I'm not alone. I just listened to the Series 2 Christmas special recaps, and you two discussed the game Snapdragon. I'm skipping the hiatus episodes for now, so perhaps you got telegrams about this already. But just in case, I thought I'd send a telegram, as my Scottish-American family plays this every year around the holidays. Snapdragon is just as ridiculous and dangerous as it sounds, but also a lot of fun. It's a fairly easy setup. Put a bunch of raisins or any other small dried fruit in a heat-proof dish, such as a pie plate. Pour high-proof brandy into the dish about a quarter inch deep and light it on fire. Everyone stands around the dish and reaches in, grabs a flaming raisin or whatever, and then pops it in their mouth. If you do it all quickly, you won't burn yourself. Standard safety rules for playing with fire apply, such as playing it on a hard surface floor. As you might expect, it takes a tremendous amount of willpower to voluntarily reach into a flaming dish the first couple of times. If any of the cousins are interested in playing, I recommend dried cranberries or cherries in place of raisins, as they taste better after being burned. What I can't figure out is how the Scots, legendarily frugal as they are, invented a game that involves wasting brandy by lighting it on fire. Perhaps they didn't mind, since brandy is obviously inferior to Scotch whiskey. Best regards, Cousin Natalie. Yeah, we did not know what Snapdragon was. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, I, I feel like I Barring knew... going back and listening to every yeah. podcast. <laughs> which, good lord. I think we would have remembered this, though, which yeah. sounds like a great time. Yeah. I really want to play this game. <laughs> uh, also, I would like to... Th- I, I think, you know, the point about Brandy being inferior to Scotch whiskey is a good one. Yeah. But also, the Scots are legendarily frugal, but they're also legendarily badass. So they would clearly <laughs> want to come up with, like, a holiday game that, you know, would put their, you know, pussy Irish and English friends at a disadvantage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, this is so great, and we're glad to hear that someone on the AV Club was talking about us in the yeah, comments. That's, that's cool. a, we, uh... a very well-respected commentariat at this house. It is. So it's, it's yes. neat. Uh, we actually did get to go back and see the thread. I think they were talking about some something we had about Bates in prison or something like something that. Something like that, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the commenter was um, Lux Lisbon. Who comments on everything? Yeah, I felt I felt super famous. Yeah, so so. Uh, Lux Lisbon, if you're out there, cousin Lux, cousin Lux, hey. well done. Yes, well we, done. We appreciate it. I hope no one trip Fontaines you. <laughs> so we're at a bit of a surprising impasse here, cousin. Yes, we were not in any way expecting this to take anywhere near as long as it has. In fact, yeah. Uh, 
we didn't realize we still had so much to so very much to say. Yeah, we thought we were just going to kind of whip through this and say a few words, but once we get to talking about Downton Abbey, we can't stop. <laughs> we can't stop. Can't stop. Won't stop. That's right. So actually, it looks like this is going to have to be a two or possibly even three parter <laughs> yeah. of catching up on our correspondence and recapping the series. Uh, but hopefully, you're all fine with that. You all seem to really prefer the episodes where we're talking about Downton. Yeah, indeed. So. Let's keep that conversation going. There's a lot to discuss. Yeah. And we'll we'll try to keep these coming out, you know. Like we'll 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 have the next part out next week. Or yeah. We'll, what do you think? Weekly? Listen, as of the time that we're recording it, we haven't decided. <laughs> right. But uh, we we're we're gonna try to keep it up weekly at least until we're finally done with actual yeah. Downton material. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you you won't have to wait terribly long right. for the next one. Yeah, I think that's about it. Uh, we <laughs> hope you enjoy the theme song for this, which was sent in by a cousin whose Twitter handle escapes me, but will be revealed <laughs> in the next episode. It's the Shank Bates remix, which we love. Yeah. Uh, so enjoy it now after we sign off, because until next time, up, up yours downstairs, downstairs luncheon out. <laughs>